available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions Christmas Edition. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we make the Podcast of Champions talking all things Pac-12 football, recording early. On Christmas Eve day, that's the kind of dedication you get here at the POC. My boy David Woods, up early, ready to record. I'm really impressed, Dave, that uh, we're getting this done on Christmas Eve day. Yeah, you know, it kind of, I think it pokes holes in um, our longstanding joke about me being a um, absolute layabout. Because no <laughs> absolute layabout would be waking up at 530 to record this piece of crap. True. Uh, you're up way early in the morning, which is crazy. You also took a shot at me on my birthday about how I don't do anything for the show. So you're did just I proving do it, it while wishing you a happy birthday. You did just like I we give you the sour and the sweet right at the same time. Just like we like our uh, Apple Podcast reviews. That's well, the same way. Exactly. We well, like it both. We we <laughs> actually don't like one or the other. We like them both together. It's that mixture. It gives you it gives you um, you know a good bite to it. Um, it's not claggy, you know, there's no, uh, there's no stodginess to it. If you can tell, I've been watching a little bit of Great British Bake Off. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Uh, I watched the, uh, Love Actually last night with my mother. Ooh, so. terrible movie. You don't like the movie? Uh, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't, a, I'm not like a huge fan, but it's kind of cute, like, I don't know, like, yeah, I'm not. No, it's, it's actually an abomination. It's a crime against humanity. Wow. Okay. There's so many good people in it, like the wife from yeah, uh, Ozark, the the Walking Dead guy, like all the people I've seen in other stuff. You it's know. kind of incredible how bad it is. <laughs> like, I guess I don't have a super strong opinion. Why is your opinion so strong about Love Actually? I, I, it's it's not an opinion. It's an objective fact. I can't <laughs> I actually can't go deeper into it than that. It's just the reality of the situation. And uh, yeah, that's that's really that's really just what it is. Nice. All right. Well, I hope everyone's having a wonderful holiday. And if you want to get a hold of us as we go into our long off season soon, uh, packedoppodcast at gmail.com is the email address. We got a bunch of emails today. We actually got a text and we got a voicemail. And if you want to do either one of those, 424-532-0678 is the number. Uh, our resident Stanford fan called in. Uh, I am recording this remotely. I'm in my parents' abode in uh, Massachusetts so we won't be able to like listen to it as we play but we'll play it for you on the podcast so we get the gist of what our resident Stanford fan has to say we want to say I'll say this up top I will not be able to sing all right now by free this week but it will happen this I promise you 
Okay, so I, I guess we lost a bet. I have to go back and listen. I don't remember, but uh, I don't think we did, and I think I'm agreeing to something that really doesn't need to happen. But we are a podcast, and this is entertainment of a form. And listening to me uh, sing a song terribly that I'm not particularly familiar with, I think is uh, qualifies under that category. Yeah. Well, Stanford went four and two. A little spoiler alert. So uh, he's he's pretty happy. Uh, but if you want to tweet at us at Pac12 Podcast is the Twitter account on our website. It's Pac12Podcast.com and go there find all our old episodes. Uh, the Reddit page is Podcast of Champions. Reddit.com/r/ Podcast of Champions. Please go there and uh, you know interact with your fellow Pac12 fans and. Like we mentioned, Apple Podcasts, you can go there, subscribe to the Podcast of Champions, which is great. You can get this in your feed every week as we put these shows up. But also, give us a five-star rating. Any kind of review uh, is fine. It can be negative, like Dave said. He likes a little sweet, a little sour. Um, So do that. But we want the five stars. And then you can say how terrible we are, how bad of a singer David is, any of those things. We appreciate all of that. We have two new reviews. Oh, we do. Oh, nice. Okay. Indeed. Uh, one from Quick SS, five stars, thumbs up. It's a the thumbs up emoji. Uh, Shut down full cast is good. So <laughs> that's good. I think we've talked about this. Like I've tried, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. I feel like you're you're opening a uh, you know a novel in the middle somewhere and just start reading and you're like, I, I don't know what they're talking about because Very literally there's, there's no intro and there's no conclusion to any episode of the shutdown full class. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I like the show. Um, I kind of lost the thread a while back and, uh, haven't really gotten back into it. Um, in the last probably year. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's funny. It's funny as hell. Uh, Spencer Hall is a demented genius. Um, and Ryan Nanny's very good too. But uh, yes, Shutdown Fullcast is very good. Um, all right, we have another five star from mm, 1-1-1. I'm just trying to pronounce all those M's. Five stars. Fine. It's a podcast. Usually they talk about football. College football is a weird sport, and these guys are definitely weird. Keep listening, it will grow on you. Lots of random topics, which is a positive. Actual football analysis is okay. Research and preparation are rare. Rants and ravings are common. Yet I look forward to it every week. Sound effects are loud and annoying, but it's part of the charm. Chemistry between the two is actually pretty good. Once you start, you can't stop. Thank me later for your new favorite Pac-12 podcast. If you could tell I was reading that weird, it is written like a poem. Um, oh, nice. Every single sentence is on its own line. Um so I love it. I five stars for your review, sir. That is Four awesome. That, that is a great review. Um, wow. I mean, I, I was not expecting that. That's like a holiday gift. Uh, I, I, I feel uh, overjoyed. I feel renewed. Um, you know, a, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Yes. Uh, well, th- thank you for that one. And thanks for all the reviews. That definitely helps us to. Can, can we, uh, an aside, Ryan. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So I am in uh, no way a religious man. You, you know this about me. Yes. Um, but I think I've discovered something about myself this, uh, this holiday season, which is that I am very much a cultural Catholic. Catholic. Okay. Because the only Christmas songs that really pop for me, like the only ones that are really like, yeah, that's a jam. Yeah, that's, that's I, I, can, I can bop to that. They're all the hyper-religious ones. Like, really? Oh, Holy Night. Yeah, yeah, that shit whips. Um, 
Like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's all and every single one of them. I'm like, oh yeah, that's my jam. And it's like, well, that that doesn't really follow. Like, oh holy night is literally just. It's like literally about Christ's birth. Like that's all yeah. it is. And it's just like, come on, man. What's going um, on here? If you go to like Spotify, like any of the reviews for Oh Holy Night, I don't know if anyone has ever said that shit whips. So that would be a great. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I don't know if Spotify does like reviews like that, but if they did, um, yeah, probably not. Yeah. Great. I like that. That's you. Uh, that's, that's me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like I like the traditional like you know jingle bells or whatever. I mean, I, I mean, I, whatever. I'm I'm you know we'll be going to church a little later today. My voice is kind of going. I don't know what's going on here, but yeah. So I do like I like some Christmas music. I don't like it too early. I don't like it in you know Halloween. Oh, you're one of those pieces of crap. <laughs> you like Christmas? The I'll, I'll listen to Christmas music all year long, I'll, okay. and I'll sing it like. You can just hear me booming "Good King Wenceslas" in like the middle of summer, because <laughs> that's another jam, like such a jam. It's a good and one. That's about a saint. That's about a bohemian saint from like the nine hundreds. What am I doing? You, uh, that's you have unique personality, David. I, yeah. That's uh, that's what we love about you. Where yeah. where do you stand on uh, the Mariah Carey "All I Want for Christmas Is You"? Crap! Absolute crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Christmas song should be recorded by anyone prior to the 1950s. Um, all of them should be from the 1950s and earlier. I tend to agree with you. There's a couple like ones from the 80s. Like there's that one by the waitresses. Uh, no, you want to speed up and make it modern? Uh, no, that's feces. Don't do that. <laughs> um, there's some, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm more of an old school kind of Christmas uh, guy. So, well. It is, yeah, we are, it is Christmas Eve. Um, like I said, I'm going to go to church a little bit later. Uh, so we'll, we'll do the Christmas Eve kind of mass. You can do this, like, I'm, so I'm in Massachusetts, pretty liberal state, David. Um, had dinner in a, inside a restaurant last night. You know, they, they have like 25% capacity or something, but you can do that here. Uh, for church, you can go in, but you have to make a reservation. Uh, but it's just very different leaving California and seeing, like, even in a state that's pretty liberal, like, Massachusetts. Now they do have a Republican governor, but um, it's crazy what we can't do in California that we can do other places. Pretty liberal state has a Republican governor. <laughs> well, it, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, Ma- but Massachusetts has always been weird, and uh, it has Boston in it. For Christ's sake, <laughs> it has Boston in it. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah no, uh, a lot of places in the world are behaving stupidly. That's true. Okay, um, but we don't though. So, we don't need to get into that. We're no. spreading Christmas cheer today. We are. Uh, we need. We have to talk about some breaking news. I don't have the sound effects, so you want to do a... Breaking news. Oh, so you just make up your own. I like that. You're not going like, to copy the one we have. No, I don't uh, remember that one. Yeah. Um, so, Arizona, you remember? They uh, fired Kevin Sumlin. I don't remember why. I, I remember they lost 70 to seven. I mean, that could have had something to do with it or the 12 game losing streak. I'm remembering losing a full season's worth of games straight. That does that yes. ring a bell? That yes. Okay. okay. So that's probably retrospect, probably part of the reason. It's, it's always why. hard to piece these things together because there's so many factors that play into a hiring <laughs> or firing decision. But I think those two data points did play some, some low key minor role. Yeah. 
So if you're like, you know, a Washington State fan and you didn't even realize that Arizona fired their head coach, we sort of just want to give you a little background. They did. And they made a hire, David. Someone that's been at UCLA, uh, Jed Fish. Jed the uh, Fish, yeah. Yeah, he's been in the NFL the last couple of years. But he's back in the Pac-12. And the head coach, uh, his name has popped up like over the last couple of years a few times. And uh, now he's, he's, he's made the hire's been made. Seeing some positive things, usually you get that when a coach is hired. I know you have some insights on this. I wanted to get your thoughts on uh Well, I, I do want to acknowledge the pain and heartbreak of Arizona's uh, fan base because they're apparently feeling a lot of pain and heartbreak because they didn't get to hire the, like, 10 and 29 San Jose State coach or whatever the fuck his record is. <laughs> they wanted him so bad. They wanted Brent Brennan, some dude who's had one good year and had literally the worst year in the San Jose State history in 2017. And yes, I know it's a bad program, and he had the worst year they've ever had. What are you doing, Arizona fans? It's all right to be angry at mismanaged programs, but you don't need Brent Brennan. You really didn't. Think about having, think about hearing us having to say his name over and over and over again. Brent Brennan. Brent Brennan. What kind of name is that? What did his parents do to him? <laughs> Think about that. Okay. Anyway, he's he's not your answer, okay? He's just not. Now, the question is, is Jed Fish your answer? Um, so I saw one year of him as the offensive coordinator at UCLA where he was quite good. Uh, UCLA's offense um, was horrific under Kennedy Palomalu in 2016, and he turned it back to very good overnight. Um, and it was the same quarterback. I mean, Josh Rosen got hurt in the Palomalu year, partially because of Kennedy Palomalu's uh, horrific offense. Um, but Rosen was healthy, I guess, in Fish's year mostly. But even still, uh, the offense just looked better even in the moments, you know, compared to Palomalu's time with healthy Rosen. Um, it was a pro-stylish scheme. Um, so you're going to be getting something that looks like football. I know a lot of you were worried about you know, getting a triple option guy, which I thought was a silly mistake that you didn't just opt for that. But um, you're going to get something that looks like football. You're not going to have any limitations in recruiting from a scheme standpoint that you might have had with the triple option. Um, And, you know, as far as personality, the way he carries himself, which I think is much more important in a head coach than in a coordinator, he was really good. Um, He was really good with the media. Um, He seemed like a bright dude. Um, and all that stuff, I think you're going to have a good, um, you know, head of the program. I think, uh, someone to a large extent, I think literally was still feeling shell shock from the whole Texas A&M experience, but he was very reserved and didn't really have much of a personality with the media at all. Um, these three years in Arizona, I think you're going to have more of like actual, you know, head man, you know. He's the the face of the program type deal with Fish. Um, I think there's a lot to like there. It's obviously his first head coaching job, but anytime you're hiring somebody who it's their first head coaching job, there's upside. Um, You don't really know. Like, Brent Brennan, to my eye, is a proven mediocrity that may get better. Um, But if you're actually objectively looking at his um, seasons in San Jose State, unless you're applying your own narrative to it, which is that it's been improved every year. The thing is, for that program, he had two horrific years. His first two years were horrific for that program. His third year was about average for that program. And his fourth year, 
while good, was not even as good as Mike McIntyre's 2012 season. Um, do you, did you like the Mike McIntyre years at Colorado? Is that what you wanted, Arizona? Because that's the analog for uh, Brent Brennan. So Fish could be good. You don't really know. I think the model for Fish, um, which is what I tweeted out yesterday, is sort of what Jonathan Smith has done at Oregon State. Um, craft a very well-schemed offense and build off of that um, and slowly build your program. Because I don't think there's going to be expectations to win 10 games suddenly. I think it's going to be look like a competent football team and then let things fall where they may. And I think those two programs are similarly situated. They've got a better recruiting power in state that will scoop up a lot of what they would have tried to get talent-wise. Um, and so they've got to get creative. Um, so I think Arizona, look to Oregon State and how they're building under Jonathan Smith. And uh, if if Fish can follow along on that path, uh, you could have a pretty good team in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting hire to say the least. I mean, they were apparently looking at Antonio Pierce, um, the uh, you know co-defensive coordinator for uh, the the rival uh, Arizona State. So I don't know if that was a real thing or not, but that was a an interesting deal. Um, you know the relationship between the Arizona president uh, Robert Robbins and uh, Jed Fish. Another weird name. Why didn't he hire Brent Brennan? So that's what I was going to say. Is like Robert Robbins couldn't hire Brett Brennan because it would just be too much. So. I think that's why he was out. That's that's my, you know, it's not sourcing. That's just more of an intuition kind of thing. There can be only one person <laughs> who was, like, nominally abused by their parents. <laughs> but, you know, what could go wrong when you have the president of the university sort of like, hey, I like him. Um, I, forget, I forget what the relationship is there, but they have a, a strong relationship. Plus, Jed Fish was around. Uh, Sean McVay, which was like a big thing two years ago. I don't know if it's as big now, but if you were just in Sean McVay's presence, your you were your status as a coach was elevated. He was around um, the great Jim Mora. Ooh, uh, I don't know if that helps. Maybe it doesn't help. Um, but you know, this is good. Like it would have been fun to see like a triple option or something there. But this was someone that I've heard his name quite a bit. That's people felt like you know personality wise, like he's going to be good with. The media, he's going to be good with uh, recruiting. He'll be good with boosters. He's just like, a, he's got a personality that's not prickly. As you could say, Kevin Sumlin's was where they wouldn't let anyone see anything or talk to anybody. And it just, you know, just getting crushed for no reason. Like that's a program you need to embrace as much coverage as you possibly can get. And uh, so I think that's a situation where he's going to be better. And sometimes it's like you hire somebody that is, um, you know, a lot different, you know, personality wise, if you're like in a relationship and you're with someone that's super controlling, like you want to get some, you know, the next person you date, you'd want them to not be a controlling person. You know, like I think someone that was like bad with the media and just prickly that way, you're going to get someone that's friendlier and it's probably not a bad thing, you know? No, I think it's, I, I think you need it in a head coach. I think, um, unless they're like one of those truly elite crazy guys, um, they need to be, warm and friendly and all of that so um yeah i think it's a good hire um interestingly and this is something i actually like about him even though it's been talked about as a negative he didn't play any college football and he didn't play high school football he's a tennis guy um he got into coaching just because he was interested in it um i think people who do that route and still manage to get to this level uh it means something pretty profound about them 
because this is an in an in group uh, thing. I mean, it's very incestuous the coaching industry. So to break into that after having not played means like one of a few different things. Uh, one, he's an incredible schmoozer, which uh, that obviously translates to a certain huge aspect of coaching in college football. Or two, he's got such obvious talent um, in terms of coaching that it's enough to break past um, the obvious bias that would be at work against him. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that one uh, turns out. We uh, hope to see things turn around in uh, Tucson going forward. He'll have, you know, he's got a lot of time being hired in December. I mean, you'll have some opportunities to uh, build up what you want. If things open up in the spring and he gets spring football, it'll be an advantage that, Guys like uh, Carl Durrell and uh, Nick Rolovich didn't have, at least kind of installing what he wants to install. And it seems like they're ready. You know, they're ready for a change there. So uh, that's positive stuff. Um, I know we we talked, we, we did have a pre-show uh, meeting that lasted about three minutes, but or less than that. There are a few um, opt-out, like players that have opted out for the NFL draft. So Dimitri Felton and uh, Oza Oziggy Dua, right? No, Holy wait. crap. Odiggy Zua. I do it. I do it. I can't even talk this morning. Odiggy. Odiggy. Odiggy Zua. Yeah. Both announced they're going to go to the NFL, but uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson will be back. So that's good. Uh, Oregon State, which is interesting. Um, Hemakar Rashid and uh, Nashawn Wright, um, the outside linebacker and cornerback, both have opted out. So those are two big playmakers for that Beavers defense. The weird one, Jake Bentley, Utah's quarterback, who was playing, um, he transferred in this year from South Carolina, is back in the transfer portal. I don't, I've not read the story on that. I don't understand that one. That's a a weird, have you seen that anywhere, Dave? Well, the reason would be he didn't play particularly well this year, and uh, he was not picked to start to begin the year. So I'm thinking, he's thinking, uh, I got to go find a different spot that actually likes me. Yeah. And uh, ASU lose Frank Darby. Um, their top receiver. So he's going to the NFL. I'm sure there'll be more um, opt-outs and stuff as we go forward. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. And we know most of the Pac-12 has opted out of a bowl. We're going to preview the games, but there's only two bowl games, only two Pac-12 bowl games. Does that just sit weird with you, Dave? Uh, very strange year. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's going to be very strange. Um, like honestly that, uh, and you can, we'll talk about it when we're recapping the games. Every one of these felt like a bowl game in that it was like this depressing, disorganized, like awful football game, except for the Pac-12 championship game, which was a beautiful piece of art. Um, (laughs) but the, the three games on Saturday already felt like I, I, I got my fill of, of, crappy football um for one weekend so uh i don't really need to see any more bowl games but yeah we'll see uh we'll see oregon and, and colorado do their thing yeah so it ended up being four games of week seven and we had a good picking week uh david ended up winning um i was three and one dave was four and oh again picks against the spread the one that uh the arizona state oregon state game i took the beef since i had picked the beavers Throughout and and Dave reluctantly picked Arizona State because he wanted to go opposite me and it worked I out. I am a golden god. Nice. Um, so we're both finished uh, above five hundred. Um, so that's a good uh, good for us. Um, 
you know, well, we still have uh, the two the two bowl games to pick, but not bad. But I think I have a two game lead on you, so I think you'd have to get both of them to tie yeah, me. You're gonna pick, one. and then I'm just gonna pick the opposite end. Okay. So we'll do that. So we'll do the opposite thing. Um, so let's recap the games. I'm sorry we don't have these sound effects because I'm remote. Um, but the first game, the first one that was scheduled, Washington at USC for the Pac-12 championship game. And that one was? Uh, oh, no. What was the other one? USC? Yeah. Okay. And and what's the uh, – do you want to do the drop here for this? Uh, cool. Pac-12 roundup. No, no. The, uh, it's oh. the COVID, COVID canceled. COVID canceled. There you go. Um, so replacing that one was the Oregon Ducks uh, quack, at quack, quack. at USC, and uh, yeah, USC was a three-point favorite in this one. Yeah, and um, I think I said in the pregame this was a stone-cold lock that Oregon would beat USC, which uh, frankly that game turned out to be. Um, I thought it was. Uh, Maybe not quite as close as the uh, final score indicated. Oregon won 31-24. Kayvon Thibodeau was the best player on the field, and if he plays like that every game, uh, he's the best player in the Pac-12. And by, like, a, I don't know, a decent margin? Yeah. Um, Just, it it was, you can't even describe it perfectly, and frankly, his stats do not bear it out. But he was... So disruptive on every single play. It was just freakish the way he was eating up the USC tackles. And it was it was a variety of different things, but I was so impressed with his bull rush. Like, just driving the dude back every single down. Um, and it made life hell for Keaton Slovis. Uh, Slovis was not sharp through three picks. Um, a lot of the Oregon scoring in the first half was just straight off of turnovers. Um like, Oregon's offense was no great shakes, but Slovis was just making it easy for him um, with the picks. Um, and I, I, But mainly what this game was for me was uh, by far the best defensive performance for Oregon this year. Um, they saved it up for this moment, but um, it was – they were, they were re- really, really, really good. Uh, they kept that USC rushing offense completely in check. And that hasn't been a difficult thing to do this year, but um, USC's rushing offense looked a lot better the previous week against UCLA, and then it was dreadful um, in this game. And then Slovis, it was just inefficient. Um, He threw three picks, but also what the Oregon defense was doing was just forcing long drives. Like, USC had to execute all the way down the field um, to make it work, and, and they just weren't able to do it consistently enough. Uh, I thought it was a really good defensive game for Oregon. And then, you know, they did enough offensively. I think the reality is Tyler Shuck, at least at this stage, is a little bit limited. Um, and clearly his coaches do not trust him to execute a lot of that offense. No. Um, in the second half especially, they looked like they lost all confidence in him. To yeah. the point where Anthony Brown, their backup, had to come in um, on the final drive, I think, to uh, – to actually move them downfield and make sure they, they got some points on the board. Um, you know, Brown looked, you know, like a pretty capable backup and he can, he can run a little bit too. Um, got some power, uh, running the ball. So they've got some things to work out offensively at quarterback. I think, you know, Shuck started the year really good. Um, and then I think it just maybe, you know, first season, all that kind of stuff, or maybe he's just not that good. Hard to say. I'm going to stop making fun of his name until he proves that he's good again, because it's no fun to make somebody make fun of somebody who's bad. Sorry, Jake Browning. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry for all of our trespasses, Jake Browning. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I also like Sean Dollars for Oregon. 
he looked he looked really good with uh, CJ Burdell out for this one. So, um, I mean, for USC, and, and not that like I want to provide any sort of solace for USC, but Brew McCoy and Drake London are really friggin' good. Um, and whoever they're losing in the receiving court, it doesn't matter because they've got Drake London, who's a sophomore, Brew McCoy is a freshman. They're both really good. Uh, they're going to be really good next year, too. So, um, USC, you're going to be fine, okay? You're going to be fine. Uh, but Oregon, uh, talented team. You know, and I, I do want to acknowledge this, Brian. Um, yes. Uh, this was obviously a travesty of scheduling. Um, if USC had had those extra, like, 6 to 12 hours to prepare for this one, <laughs> I mean, you would have easily seen USC win this by three or four touchdowns um, very clearly. Um, and I, honestly, it was Yeoman's effort uh, from Clay Helton um, in the exact amount of time that Oregon also had to prepare for USC to even get them this close. Um, I think, you know, given given um, just the, the clear deck stacked against USC um, going into this game where they had the exact amount of time to prepare as Oregon did, um, it was just an incredible effort. Um, and frankly, Clay Helton should get an extension off of it um, because just, you know, the USC program is always just so besieged by these these horrific circumstances. You know, it's, it's one of the unluckiest programs in history. Um, just so many things have to go right for USC to win a football game. And uh, it's always just, um, you know, it's, it's just it's just so incredible when they get this close. So Clay Helton, hats off to you, man. Nice. I got, I'll have a serious question for you after this. But um, well, you, you can take off the the snark hat sometimes and talk about, but so I was impressed with what Oregon was able to do. I mean, obviously losing to Oregon state, uh, give it up 800 rushing yards, uh, to the Beavers, uh, losing to Cal having a limited offense for sure with CJ Verdell out and Tyler Shuck, just not doing much. I mean, I thought it was really nice that, that they brought in Anthony Brown. If you remember, he transferred in from, um, Boston College, and they, you know, this was a wrinkle in the game plan. Having those extra twelve hours, they were able to put something like that in the program, you know. And uh, so they, uh, but he, you know, he looked good. He threw two touchdown passes. You know, he only threw four passes, but two of them went for touchdowns. He was, you know, mobile. He could run the, you know, run the ball a little bit. You could tell. I mean, the game was still. I mean, the, the game should have been more of a blowout than it was, but it was close. I was always closer. But Oregon with a limited offense third and nine, third and eight would have no problem running the ball and then picking up the first down. Um, that's how much, you know, Oregon was not going to let Tyler Shuck make a mistake and put USC back in the game. And USC relied on Keaton Slovis so much when he was a little off and he throws those early picks, Oregon would just take advantage of it. It was kind of Stanford-y, you know, like they would like, hey, we're going to not, we're not going to push the envelope offensively and we're just going to let the other team make mistakes. And when you're, that's a demoralizing way to lose. When you know you're facing a team that's really not trying that hard, they're just trying not to make a mistake. And you're like, hey, if we're a good offense, we should be able to move the ball on these guys. And uh, USC wasn't able to do that with any consistency. And uh, you know, the the final play was pretty. It's, it's kind of a good way to wrap up the season for USC, where you know Keaton Slovis has to throw this hail mary, and. You know, he's getting pressured as he was all game, gets hit, 
and throws the ball and it hits the his offensive lineman and it's just sort of like your hail mary attempt went to your offensive lineman uh, as the quarterback's getting pressure. So this was, you know, probably the worst game I'd seen Keaton Slovis play. He only, you know, he's normally completing 70% of his pass. He completes 70% of his passes, and some people were like, hey, he didn't look that great. This was like 53%. Um, it was a tough day for him. I'm not blaming him a lot. Um, you know, the offensive line really had problems uh, with what Oregon was able to do. But USC lived dangerously throughout the year and could have lost. You know, this could have been a 2-4 and four team. Easy. Like, looking at the games that they won in the fourth quarter comebacks. They were lucky and they won all those games. They weren't lucky in this one. And, uh, you know, Oregon was definitely uh, the better team on the night. And they came in and they looked like a, a, a well-prepared team that was ready to win a Pac-12 championship. And that's what they end up doing on a Friday night. Really weird. I was there in person. Very strange. Um, just covering these games and seeing that, you know, they come on the field at the end of the game for the trophy presentation, even though there's no one there confetti like it just was a bizarre feeling dave being there for that one yeah i can imagine i can imagine so i wrote a column afterwards and uh i said that usc's football season was a failure that if you look at the talent that usc had if you look at you know they bring in a whole new defensive staff and the defense actually got better throughout the year you take the hardest game two of the playoff teams that were supposed to be on the schedule are no longer there they didn't have to play the number one team in the South and they didn't have to play the number one team in the North and still could have won a Pac-12 championship. So to me, I said, this was a Pac-12 championship season or bust for Clay Helton. So the fact that they didn't win it and there was, you know, certainly afforded the opportunity and everything going their way, they didn't have any really bad COVID stuff happen except this, the six day thing um, at the end, you know, two, you know, two games in 13 days instead of two games in 15 days, not that big of a deal to me. But COVID-wise, like, they didn't have to play without Keaton Slovis. Like, Stanford had to play without Davis Mills. They had a lot of things go their way as far as the COVID bad things. Um, so, to me, it was a failure. If Take off your snark, Clay Houghton extension hat. Do you Would you agree with me on that? Well, first, Ryan, I would like you to look at the results of your Twitter poll and just, you know, acknowledge <laughs> the reality that there is some dispute about this. But if you want Thanks me to, to you. remove... <laughs> look, I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm just here to talk about the data. You can only look at the data. Uh, and it was 71-29. Now, was it at one time 86-14 before I decided to quote tweet it? Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, taking off the snark hat, here's, here's the reality for USC. This was a 3-3 three and three USC team. Uh, against Arizona State, uh, ASU was post-game win percentage based on the stats of the game. ASU should win that game 83% of the time. Post-game uh, win percentage for the UCLA game, uh, UCLA should have won that game 95% of the time. Uh, this was a bad USC team. Um, they performed horribly relative to their talent. Um, there were multiple games that they should have lost that they won, and even the games where they won um, and should have won, it was marginal. They only had one dominant win all year, which was Washington State. Every other game was marginal. Uh, Arizona, USC was a 56% post-game win percentage, uh, and that's a horrible Arizona team, one that hasn't won a game in 12 games. Uh, Utah, even, where they won by 16 points, USC was only 73% to win that game, uh, based off the stats of the game. 
to perform like this with the level of talent that USC has, the advantage they have over the other teams in the league, aside from essentially on this list, the only team where they didn't have a pronounced talent advantage was Oregon. And Oregon thumped them, you know, better than anybody had this year. Um, just, well, actually, UCLA did. But um, but Oregon, you know, won decisively. Uh, the rest of these, USC has a major talent advantage. Major. Uh, even against UCLA these days, because Chip Kelly doesn't like to recruit. Um, to perform this way, yeah. I mean, Clay Helton should have been fired three years ago. But as it is, yeah, he should be fired every single year because he's a terrible football coach. Um and uh, a, an absolute joke of a coach and uh, a huge part of the reason, you know, look at how other like, look, the rest of the Pac-12 fan base, which is like a lot of UCLA people, but a bunch of other people who follow me. We moved that poll 15 <laughs> points in favor of keeping Clay Helton because he's so bad at USC. When you have somebody horrible at USC, it's great for the rest of the league. Yet, and obviously, probably not in a you know, shooting your own foot off type way from your, from a perception standpoint, but it opens things up. You know, does Utah ever win the South if USC is run by a competent head coach? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a gift that keeps on giving uh, to other teams that are interested, especially in coming out of the South. Merry Christmas, rest of the Pac-12 uh, yeah. from USC. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, that was really well stated. Uh, Dave, that's yeah. Would you know what the percentage was? I think Oregon. It might be a little different for the Oregon game. Because... Oregon was seventy-seven percent to win. So oh, okay, the game where USC lost, quote, lost the worst this year was the UCLA game. Yeah, um, like they under almost no circumstances should they have won that game. Um, and then the one after that is actually ASU. ASU should have won that game pretty decisively, um, and then Oregon. Especially um, the point in time for Arizona State when. The you know if three minutes left in the game, Arizona State's up by thirteen points. Yeah, it was it's like ninety nine points exactly. that, yeah. that close and late. Um, and I don't even think this metric takes that into account. But like, yeah, exactly the on the ground reality. Um, UCLA and ASU both had leads late against yeah. USC um, that they gave up. Um, so and Arizona did too. I mean, Christ. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, USC was a bad team this year. Um, they got lucky. Lucky as hell to be five and one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. So that was the Pac-12 championship game that happened first. Uh, but we had, so, you know, there's a couple of interesting games here. Uh, we next we have uh, Washington State Cougars. Uh, meow. And then we have the Utah Utes. <laughs> and uh, the Utes were so we both got the Oregon. Uh, we both picked Oregon. We got both that right. Uh, Utah was a ten and a half point favorite, and we both. Took the Utes, and uh, this was, yeah, it's, I mean, it was clear sailing for this yeah. one, for sure. Um, so Washington State jumped out to, was it 28 nothing or was it just 28-7? 28-7, yeah. Yeah, 28-7 lead at halftime. Um, it was, honestly, for Utah, it was kind of akin to the start of the Washington game, uh, but in reverse, uh, where... The other team just kind of jumps out to a huge lead. Utah was doing everything kind of wrong. Um, fumbles, punts, fumbles, punts, just all half. Uh, interception, turnover on downs, like just looked absolutely dreadful. Um, and Washington State, they looked like they kind of had it together after the, um, you know, after the season hasn't quite gone the way they wanted to after, um, you know, some COVID cancellations. 
um, and uh, some injuries, or not injuries, but guys being out who um, otherwise would have played. Um, Max Borgie was back for this game, and he looked good. Um, and then it just all fell apart. So the first half was good. Jaden Delore looked pretty good. Um, and then in the second half, they didn't score a point, and Utah scored 38. Um, <laughs> and that's just sort of what happened. Ty Jordan, uh, Ty Jordan's really, really good at football. Really good. Um, really, really, really good. He's going to be the next, you know, Devontae Booker, you know, whatever guy for Utah. That's just the the reality of what we're dealing with here, everyone. Uh, they've got their next great back. Um, so Utah eventually un- won by 17. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was a really ugly second half for the Washington State offense. Um, just could not, could not move the ball. Couldn't do anything. Um, that Utah... Defense clamped down. Um, the offense stopped making so many egregious mistakes, and it was basically all she wrote. Yeah, so it was – my first note was Utah looked like poop. So they were just looking awful. And similar to, if you remember, the USC-UCLA game where the Bruins were covering that game for the entirety, like for 59 and a half minutes of the 60 minutes Utah, US, UCLA was covering – Washington State to have a 28-7 lead and also be getting 10 and a half points. In what world could Utah come back and cover that game? I guess in the Pac-12 world, uh, that's what happened. Um, three turnovers in the first half for Utah, and that's how it became 28-7. To give the Utes credit, there wasn't any panic there. Uh, they just kind of played their game. And by the end of the third quarter, it's 28-21, and you're still like, okay, Utah can definitely win this game, um, but, you know, what's going to happen? Like, they're not going to cover, and they end up doing it. It was like there was a fourth and one um, for Ty Jordan, and they hand it to him, and he takes it to the house and ties the game at 28. And that seemed to be a bit of a backbreaker because you can figure, you know, fourth and one, you get off the field. Not only you give up the first down, but you give up the touchdown. Uh, we end up seeing uh, Cam and Cooper come in because uh, Delora got banged up a little bit, but it was just one series. Uh, Max Borgie, I thought, was a huge difference maker, but he ends up fumbling deep in Washington State territory and set Utah up. It was 38 unanswered points, like Dave said, in the second half. So Washington State went from, like, you know, whatever they wanted to do with all those Utah turnovers in the first half to only 108 yards in the second half, and they turned the ball over four times. So trumping what Utah was able to do in the first half. And then at the end, doesn't look like Utah is going to cover, pick six. Um, And then Washington State's driving and fumbles inside the five-yard line. So I don't know what... The, the odds to win and all that stuff for this one, Dave, I'm not sure. The odds for Utah to cover had to be astronomically low and somehow you know needing a pick six needing another washington state fumble while they're inside the five yard line absolutely insane but i was like yeah i never thought we'd be covering this game but utah you know there was two good halves washington state played a good half utah's good half was better than washington state's uh good half yeah that seems right um utah uh so the thing i would say about utah's season it was uh, sneaky good, I would say. Uh, the Washington State game, so the post-game win percentage for Utah was 98%. So under no circumstances should they have lost that game, uh, and they didn't. Um, USC, you know, beat them. 
But Washington, I mean, they should have won the Washington game. Utah was 65% to beat them. But they were 100% against Oregon State. They won by six. But they were 100% likely to win that game based on the relevant stats. And they were 76% over Colorado, which is a good Colorado team. So Utah was good this year. They finished 3-2. and two, Maybe should have been 4-1. and one, But they were pretty good. And, it, you know, when you talk about COVID circumstances, um, like we talked, you know, USC did miss a game. But they end up missing like Colorado and they only missed one game and they were able to come back. Uh, and, you know, it didn't seem to impact them as much. I think missing the first two games of the season, I believe that's what Utah did, right? Um, that That's tough. I mean, you're starting your season late. So you have your opener against USC where the Trojans have already played two games. I think some of the COVID cancellation circumstances definitely uh, impacted the Utes in a negative way. And if if this was a team that was able to start from the beginning and maybe miss a game in the middle, as opposed to missing the first two out of the gate, um, it could have been a different, you know, record for the Utes. And like you said, that Washington game, you know, you have a 21, nothing lead, especially the way Utah, you know, usually can run the football. They, you know, control the clock, good special teams. You can't lose that game. And, uh, and they did. So, you know, it's, I think Utah's going to look at this and say, hey, we can build on this for, you know, didn't win the South this year, but, you know, had one at the last two. You can say it's a COVID, crazy COVID year, but we got a st- young star in Ty Jordan. He made the basically every other running back in the program transfer out, and uh, we can build on him. So, uh, yeah, I think the – I think it's not a – you can't say it's a great season for Utah, but, you know, overall it's like, hey, there's a lot of positives you can take from this one. And for Washington State – They've shown some good flashes. I didn't think they'd be very good because of the, you know, new head coach and all that stuff. But I, I like what they're doing. I think you clean some things up and, and Washington State can be someone to, to reckon with in the Pac-12 North again. But, you know, I, I just think it's going to take a little time to build. But you've seen some like, ooh, this team could be really feisty. Yeah, to an extent. I, I'm, I'm Jury's out for me on Washington State. Um, okay. Just, I didn't see quite enough this year. Um and so we'll we'll see. But uh, and I do mean I literally didn't see quite enough. They only played four games. Um, so we'll 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 see. Um, they won a game. So that's that's nice. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll see what what else they can do next year. To beat your beefs. To beat my beefs. All right. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So crazy crazy game there. Um, especially if you're following the the odds. So that was a weird one. All right. Next up we have. Uh, Stanford Cardinal at the UCLA Bruins. Uh, Bruins were a seven-point favorite, and both David and I were on the Stanford side. Oh, yes. Um, so the first half, so UCLA lost to Stanford 48-47. to uh, The first half of this one was all Stanford, um, and it felt, so very much like every single UCLA Stanford game prior to last year. Um, just things just kind of going ugly and wrong for UCLA while Stanford was just putting together like long touchdown drives. Um, and it was 20 to three at the half after a UCLA opening drive. They were driving it well. And then Dorian Thompson Robinson took a sack that was like, I think it was like an 18 yard loss plus a fumble that made it essentially a fourth and 36 punt. Um, that was cool. Like you don't often see drive seven plays, negative two yards. When you're going negative, you're generally not going over four plays. So that, that was cool. Um, 
Then they got a field goal after a long, long drive, um, which that was, again, again, very much like what UCLA did against Stanford in the past. Like, just kind of, oh, yeah, it looks really good, really good. Oh, yeah, it just kind of stops in the red zone. Um, and then it was punt, missed field goal, end of half. But I think the big thing was it just wasn't high possession. Uh, you know, Stanford was, you know, hanging on to the ball pretty well and uh, just trying to drive in it slowly down the field and doing their thing. Um, and uh, UCLA was kind of matching them also, just driving it pretty slowly. So it was low possession. Um, Stanford's up big, kind of looked like UCLA was dead in the water. It was that sort of post-USC game malaise. You know, at that point, I was like, okay, this this thing can be written. It's over. And then UCLA rallied. Um, the second half was a lot better. Um, Dorian Thompson-Robinson went down in the first half. Chase Griffin came in um, at the very end of the first half and then um, played the entire second uh, and he looks really sharp, um, and the offense moved better with him, um, converted better with him. Um, I don't know if that was just circumstantial or if there's something, you know, some some calming effect he has over the group, but whatever. Uh, they went touchdown, 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 field goal, um, and actually were up 34 to 10, 34 to 20 um, into the fourth quarter uh, when uh, things got a little bit wonky. Um, Stanford got a uh, pick six, or Stanford threw a pick six to make it 34-20. And then, um, you know, that was really the final scoring until overtime for for UCLA. Um, Stanford was allowed to go 11 plays, 75 yards, because UCLA kind of went into essentially prevent defense. Um, and then UCLA fumbled when it was trying to ice the game up 34-27 um, on this kind of missed handoff where it was a read play. Griffin should have kept the ball, um, and he was – he didn't. He made the wrong read, but Britton Brown then decided not to catch the ball at all because, you know, he's thinking, oh, you know, Griffin's going to keep this one because I'm literally being tackled right as we're handing it off. But he's still got to catch. He's still got to hold on to the ball. You know, his responsibility is just grab it and the quarterback's supposed to pull it if uh, the quarterback wants to keep. He didn't. It was a fumble. And then Stanford went down the field in a minute 20 and scored another touchdown to tie it up 34-34. It went back and forth in overtime. And then uh, Chip Kelly. So first, I want to make something very clear before I discuss the final play. This was a miserable game to watch. Despite the fact that it feels close, it was double OT, only one by a point, a thriller, the whole thing. It was back and forth in this terrible way where Stanford looked really good early and UCLA looked like absolute piss. Then UCLA looked really good and Stanford looked like absolute piss. And then in the final minutes, Stanford looked really good again and UCLA looked like absolute piss. It wasn't a thing where both teams looked good. It was a blowout three different ways in the, yeah. in, the in, in regulation. And then overtime was just like, oh, wow, we're going to have to sit here and watch this forever. Chip Kelly, I think, feeling the same thing, decides to go for two in the second overtime, which I appreciate about him. He was mercy-killing this game. Um, and so what they do is they run a play on first down that um, Stanford gets called for a hold and UCLA gets called for intentional grounding on the same play. So it negates, and they get to try again. So they go up, they they set up for the second play, which is pretty obviously a running formation, and they are getting ready to run the ball. I think they even snap it and get ready to run the ball. Um, and Stanford, uh, you know, they look pretty prepared for it. But um, they call down from the booth that there's a replay review of the previous play, which, of course, there isn't because there's nothing to review. But they have to stop it after UCLA shows its hand, like what it's going to do. 
And so they do the stoppage, and they're like, oh, it was a missed hit of the review button, which, frankly, <laughs> come on, Pac-12, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but then UCLA just runs the same exact play, like the same exact thing with the same formation, the whole thing. And it's like, you can't do that. You just showed <laughs> this. You can't do that again. Um, and then UCLA runs the ball, gets it to, like, the half-yard line, and and, and loses. But um, – so the thing I would say about this game is, first, uh, absolutely terrible to watch. Horrible game. Um, second, Stanford is the luckiest goddamn team in the league this year. Um, so they won against... So here's... here's So again, going back to those post-game winning percentages. UCLA was 93% to win this game. Wow. Uh, against Cal earlier this year, Stanford won a game where Cal was 90% to win the game. Um, they beat Washington, where they were you know 72% to win. And they beat Oregon State where they were 67% to win. But every other game, they should have lost, and they should have lost big. Colorado was 97% to beat Stanford in that game. Wow. Uh, they should have been 2-4 and four with four blowouts um, on the <laughs> other end. So uh, kudos to you, Stanford. You won some games that you probably shouldn't, but winning uh, two games by a point, um, you know, what are you going to do? Pretty so impressive. anyway, uh, yeah, UCLA, um, they, had, they closed the year with two – um, really brutal losses um, that probably should have been wins um, if they had, you know, you know, obviously from the stats, but also if they just managed things a little bit better down the stretch. Yeah. Uh, with, real, before I go into this, when a team is that big of a favorite statistically to win a game, is that usually on the coaching staff or what would you attribute that to? It's bad luck. A lot of bad turnovers luck can play into it. Um, so basically the rule of thumb is if you fumble the ball, it's 50-50 um, for, the, uh, for whoever's going to recover. And if you throw a certain number of tipped passes, um, it's like, I don't know, it's something like 15% of them should generally be intercepted. So that's a tipped pass at the line of scrimmage, a pass defended, whatever. If somebody gets their hands on the ball in the pass game, like this percentage of the time it should be picked off. Um, and field position can play a huge role um, that generally doesn't, you know, get emphasized nearly enough. Um, so uh, essentially, it's it's turnovers luck can play a big, big part of it. Um, gotcha. So that's that's one of the things. But also, yes, coaching decisions, not maximizing. Um, yeah, it, stuff that gets kind of hidden in the stats, like your clock management, all that kind of crap. Yeah. Well, for me, okay, so. I did feel your the pain that you had described about UCLA's post-USC hangover, and it looked like the Bruins were at least hungover for the first half of this game. And I think what I've liked about this UCLA defense is they were really aggressive on, like, running downs uh, and, and really trying to shut the run down and put teams in second and third and long and – you know, play tight coverage and just really I, the pressure they've been able to put on opponents has kind of knocked them off their game. It didn't do that to Stanford early. And maybe it was just the way the Bruins were playing defense. But I thought it was like kind of Stanford-esque of, you know, from a few years ago where they were able to muscle up and run on those early downs and get, you know, have successful runs the Stanford way. And then go, you know, where they could run or pass, use play action. And they hit some pretty big plays, you know, through the air. And I felt like that was something that they did well for a while. It kind of changed. Shaw punted, I think it was like a fourth and eight or something. 
But Shaw punts from the UCLA 33. And that I was, was like, beautiful. Absolutely <laughs> beautiful. That was perfect, Shaw. You knew there was no way Stanford would lose at that point. But the problem is you felt like the, the college football gods would go against them. And I think from then on, like, that's when UCLA sort of made a, a bit of a ride. I believe the yeah, timing the, was the right. The college football gods were rope-a-doping because that was Pete Shaw. <laughs> that was Pete David Shaw. It wasn't going to go any other way at the end. Um, but then, you know, UCLA went on 21 unanswered points there. And like you said, it went from Stanford's dominating this game to, okay, UCLA's dominating this game. Um, 14 points off two Stanford interceptions. So different than what Oregon did when they kind of had this lead and, and maybe had some limitations, they didn't make the mistakes. Stanford started making uh, the mistakes and some of that aggression from the UCLA defense, I thought, uh, paid off. And then, you know, when the Bruins are up 14, you're just thinking, all right, this thing, this is over, you know? And uh, again, with the whole, if you're talking about the point spread stuff, when Stanford scored, you're like, okay, this game is probably going to end with UCLA as a seven point. You know, they'll win by seven. We'll, this will be a push. Uh, you know, and he, like you said, gets the overtime, going for two. And once they go for two, you know Stanford's covering. Um, so that was a weird one. But it it just – I agree with you, Dave. It just didn't – It's if you look at it, you're like, wow, that could have been a really fun game. And it just didn't seem like that fun of a game. You wanted to see both teams kind of playing well at the same time, but it literally was a, a teeter-totter, right? I mean, one team was terrible, and the other team was was playing well. And it just who was up and who was down, uh, you determined who wins. But, I, I mean, for Stanford to win this one at the end, down 14 like that, just absolutely crazy. Um, Part of a champion. It was, it, it was, the, the, this was a nutty one. But, uh, you know, Stanford finishes 4-2. and two. We have a voicemail coming up later describing that but uh yeah did not i i i don't look at i I look at ucla i'm like i think they were better i think ucla got better for sure and i like a lot of things they were doing they got unlucky the last couple of games or it could have been a different story and i feel like i feel like stanford was better but like they there was some i I don't know if you could you know maintain that through a 12 game season. I, I loved what they did in the first half. Like that looked like the Stanford that we'd seen before, but obviously it was not sustainable. And I'm just not sure they're going to be able to, is Stanford like quote unquote back. I kind of was thinking maybe for a little while, but I, I just, I don't think so. Um, we'll see in a full season in 2021, hopefully. Um, but yeah, there's just something was a little off, but things, the ball sort of bounced their way a bunch of times. Right. All right. Uh, this one, Arizona Wildcats. Uh, what's one? What's this one? Is it another? It's a. I don't know. Sure. California Golden Bears. And uh, I mean, almost before, like if if you were using like a you know a, a quill and an ink pen, you know, like where you dip it in, before the ink dried, this one was COVID canceled. Yeah, like I don't even know why they bothered to, the electrons used to send the email out with this one. I, it just seemed like a waste. But yeah, this was canceled from both sides. No reason to play this game, and it was not played. Uh, next, this was what was supposed to happen: Oregon Ducks, quack quack quack, against the Colorado Buffaloes <laughs> at USC, and this one was COVID canceled. Not because of either one of these teams, but because of. Uh, Washington, but unfortunately, Colorado did not get a game, 
And do you see there was some controversy, uh, Rick George? Uh, that AD was talking about, you know, them uh, their ability to play uh, out of conference game. Like Larry Scott said, they should do that. He was just sort of like, uh, yeah, how the hell are we going to do that? They already played one. They played San Diego State. So this was this was the biggest crime I thought of the yeah, the strong, weird pick. strong Marie Antoinette vibes from Larry Scott. Yeah, let him eat cake. What the hell? <laughs> So we feel bad uh, for the Buffs, but they're going to play in a bowl game, so we'll talk about that soon. Um, this one was played, Arizona State Sun Devils. <laughs> and they were on the road taking on Oregon State Beavers. <laughs> and uh, the Beavs were a 7.5 point favorite. They've been great covering all year. And uh, this was the one we did different. I took Oregon State, and Dave took ASU. ASU was a 7.5 point favorite. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, ASU won pretty comfortably, 46-33. Uh, Oregon State made it interesting, um, kind of late. Uh, they looked feisty. Uh, this was not like a pure blowout. And at a couple of different points, it looked like it could turn that way. And Oregon State said, no, no, we're not going to get blown out. Um, so I thought that was a credit to them. But uh, ASU, uh, weird rainy game. ASU ran the ball all the way over Oregon State. Just I, Rashad White, um, Jesus Christ, man. Um, Jaden Daniels also ran the ball really well. Everyone ran the ball really well. 375 yards. When you get 375 yards on the ground, everybody's running it well. You can probably hand it to an offensive lineman, they'll run it well. Um, and Jaden Daniels uh, had that one just great bomb uh, to, I think it was Jordan Porter, um, for the... Uh, for the touchdown, was it Porter? Yeah, Jordan Porter. Um, that was an incredible throw, and then he really didn't have to do anything else the rest of the game, throwing the ball. Um, yeah. They they just kept it on the ground pretty much entirely. Um, and Oregon State, uh, boy, uh, Chance Nolan um, competed? Competed. Yeah, you could technically. Thing. Technically yeah. he did. Yes. <laughs> he, he ran the ball okay. Uh, wasn't super efficient throwing the ball, but, you know, wasn't – horrendous uh and jack coletto came in at a few different points to score some touchdowns running the ball uh jamar jefferson was fine um wasn't exceptional uh but asu just looked like they were on like a vengeance mission in this game um to run the ball um as hard and as often as they possibly could and it was at no point did i feel like asu was going to lose um they were just you know, the way they were able to run the ball, it just kind of controlled the game in such a way that it made it more or less impossible for Oregon State to ever get within, like, you know, striking distance. It was always, like, kind of a two-scorish game for most of the game. Um, you know, ASU got a little interesting at the end of the first half, sort of allowed Oregon State to try to score, um, which could have cut it, but Oregon State didn't. Um, and the second half, you know, there was a moment where Oregon State looked like it might be able to do something, and then it didn't. So, yeah, anyway, comfortable win for ASU, good way to end the season. They only got to play four games, but uh, this is a good note to end on. It was. So I think for uh, Arizona State, you know, they had some bad COVID issues early, so, they, you know, they, they played some good games. Um, this was pouring rain, miserable looking there. It just it looked uh, bad. Uh, Arizona State did have a bunch of guys out. For COVID, um, and you know, with the rain and all that, they just decided to run the ball, like you said, uh, six touchdowns on the ground. It was about seventy-five percent of the offense was running the football, and I think that was smart. I think that's what they kind of needed to do: figure out a way to win. Um, 
or and early on you're like Oregon State looked pretty good. You know they force a three and out. The Beavers score first, um, and then I think it was a Rashawn White had a 51 yard touchdown run, and you're like, uh oh, like uh, if you if you can't stop him, this could be a long day. You know, so that happens. It's a tie game. Block punt, fumble. Three touchdowns later, Arizona State's up 26 to seven in less than 15 minutes. So it was sort of this like blitzkrieg of Oregon State mistakes and Arizona State just making really good plays. Um, you mentioned Jack Coletto, so he's you know the linebacker slash quarterback now. He you know was a quarterback. They they brought him in to kind of add some toughness and run the football on a handful of occasions. And it seems like every time he touched it, they picked up a first down or got a touchdown. So that was a bright spot for the Beavs. I like that little wrinkle, you know, not having uh, Tristan Jebbia. Just you know, they didn't look the same when he went out. Um, you know, when we haven't seen him in there. And uh, it kind of encapsulated the game. Oregon State had tried a fake punt in the fourth quarter that ended up going backwards. So that's sort of out of the way, you know. But they they still had a shot to, like, cover, but they just never – it was like the big brother holding the little brother at bay with his arm out. And, you know, the little brother taking punches and maybe gets one in every once in a while. But there was no way. Once, once that, you know, 26-7 to 7 lead was established, Arizona State wasn't losing this game. Um, but, you know, Oregon State did – did try to make it close and stuff. It just, they were never able to, it was, it was pretty much felt like a two score game the entire time. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I think Oregon state, there's some positives you could take away, but I think they could have had a better record this year than what they did. And Arizona state, you know, after the, the slow start, uh, kind of got things going. So they, you know, they had some unlucky breaks too, but, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like both these teams kind of, Arizona State trending up a little more. Oregon State sort of like left some opportunities on the table, probably. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a good way to think about it. All right. Well, that was our. That's all the week seven stuff. We have two bowls to uh, preview, and then we'll uh, take a quick break and get into to questions. Um, so we have the Alamo Bowl, and that's going to be uh, Colorado and Texas. USC would have likely been in this game. They opted out of a bowl, as along with most of the Pac-12. We didn't mention that, but most of the Pac-12 opted out of bowls. Anyone that was eligible, Arizona State, one of those teams, too, you know, finishing 500. Uh, but USC, you know, at 5-1, and one, decided to opt out. And so this gave Colorado an opportunity to move up to the Alamo Bowl. So this game is on uh, Tuesday, December 29th at 6 p.m. on ESPN. So, just in a few days. Uh, number 20, Texas versus Colorado in San Antonio in the Alamo Dome. Uh, Texas is a nine-and-a-half point favorite. Um, yeah. That's a lot of points. And you, you want me to – I'll pick first so you can have an opportunity to just take yeah, the opposite. Please. Let me see what Dave would like in this one. Um, Nine-and-a-half is a lot, you know. And – you know, we've seen Colorado, uh, you know, I'm not going to have a lot of faith in the Pac-12. I'm going to give you the opportunity to pick your buffs. I will take Texas in this one. God damn it. <laughs> See, we're going to take Texas. All right, all right, yeah, I'll take the That buffs. makes me feel better at least. That's yeah. fine. Carl Durrell, let's ride, buddy. You're the coach of the year. Let's do this thing. Go buffs. Coach of the year. Yeah, I mean, I you know, Texas has better athletes. Um I just feel like this could kind of steamroll a little bit. 
And, you know, but who knows? I mean, Colorado has played well uh, this year. Sam Royer is basically Sam Ellinger. Kind of. He's like like a poor man's Sam Ellinger, right? Yeah, Um, they're both Sams. They're both in the same model class. Yeah. Which one is Sam 2.0? We'll find out. I mean, nine and a half is a lot of points, you know, and uh, you want to see the Pac-12 do well in these bowl games, but I'm, my gut is they're not going to. Um, I didn't think the spread would be this big, um, but, man, that's a, yeah, that's a tough one. So Sam you know, Royer should challenge Sam Ellinger to single combat for the victory. Ooh, and what kind, what's the uh, arena going to be? What do you want it to? Uh, just a battle, fight to the finish. Like a cage match, or is it going to like be- a fight to the death? Like no, just like you pick your weapons and then you go at it. Okay, can we do Hunger Games style? Like what? I don't know. That'd be good. I'm fine okay. with that. I mean, anybody who's named Sam in this game can participate. Oh, but it'll All be right. a Sam off. I like the Sam off. Yeah. Okay, so we uh, I will take Texas and Dave will take Colorado, uh, and then the big one, the, the New Year Six Bowl. We have the Fiesta Bowl. Can we the not Oregon- call any of these the big one? Well, for the there's okay. There's two bowls. One of them is going to be the big one because it's a New Year's Six bowl. Because it's don't don't take the dictates from uh, whatever <laughs> from the man and and apply them to what we're discussing. Is this a big game? It's against Iowa State. Who gives True. a shit? Yeah, Oregon against Iowa State. This one is actually like a four million dollar payday for the Pac-12. But who cares? Right, not really. But you have to split that between all the programs. Oh, so everyone gets three hundred and fifty grand. Am I doing my yeah. math right? Yeah, Will, I think Wilner did a piece on it and stuff. The um, with all the Pac-12 teams opting out, it's really not that big of a financial impact. Like the main one you can make money on is like this or the Rose Bowl when that was going on when it wasn't a semifinal. Um, so yeah, so not too big of a financial hit by not, you know, teams opting out of bowls, but there's a big financial hit because of all the games that were missed and, and stuff like that. Mm, by the but pandemic. anyway, yeah. Oregon versus Iowa state. 1 PM on ESPN on January 2nd. We're probably going to record before this, but what the hell? Let's talk about it. Uh, Oregon versus Iowa state. Maybe we won't, maybe we just skip next week. We, maybe we should. Yeah, that might not be a bad Let's give thing. ourselves a a, a, a a time to heal our brains. Um, Oregon taking on Iowa State. Iowa State's a four and a half point favorite. Oregon's a much more talented team. Give me the Ducks. Take Iowa State, or actually, whatever you pick your thing, and then I'll pick whatever the other end is. Well, see, so you just gave your hand away. Um, you know, in in fair, I will take. I was leaning more towards Iowa State since I'll go against the Pac-12 in these. I'll take uh, I'll take the Cyclones here. Matt Campbell, oh, yeah. um, he's a NFL coaching candidate. He's a, certainly a college football coaching candidate. Um, How did he do in their a, last game? They did pretty crappy. No, I wanted to take the Ducks in this one, but I do it. Wait, so I can I pick the Ducks, or I have to pick Iowa State? Pick whatever you want. Go ahead. All right. I was going to take the Ducks. Um, All right. I'll take Iowa State. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, they came close at the end against Oklahoma. The uh, I do feel like just talent-wise, I think this can be like a field goal game. And if it was a two-and-a-half point spread or something, I might take Iowa State. But uh, that's too many for me for this one. Uh, I don't mind the Texas one as much. Um, I think – 
Oregon is a more talented team, but Matt Campbell is a really good coach, and he's going to get probably picked up by somebody, um, a big program at some point. And if you just watch what, how he's, you know, they, yeah, they lose to Louisiana or whatever early in the season, but um, they got some really big wins this year. So I, I like the way Iowa State was playing. Uh, I think Oklahoma just was, they had better athletes and they were playing better at the end of the year. Similar, I think Oregon has better athletes and they're playing better, you know, at least in the last game. Um, so now there was some COVID concerns with, with Oregon. I think they only had 54 players available for uh, the the championship game. But hopefully those are, you know, over by the time this one gets played or uh, not as severe. And I don't know what Iowa State's kind of situation on that stuff is. But, yeah, I, I thought there was too many points, so I wouldn't take the Ducks. Okay. Um, yeah, but we – yeah, so do you think maybe we won't do a show before this yeah, one? Yeah, we'll just do it after uh, after these games are done. Okay. So we'll, this will be our last show of the – of the year, but yeah, so those are our picks for the two Pac-12 bowl games. So weird, and just so weird. Um, all right, you want to get to some emails? I would love to. All right, so let's see. We've got this one. Well, you know what? Why don't we do the voicemail first? Um, and since I don't have the ability to play the voicemail, David pretty much can listen to it on his own. Uh, but I will play it for all of you listeners out there. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Sith Lord Dave. Here we are. Season's over. It's all over but the crying. Oh, and the singing. If I may remind you, fine gentlemen, uh, you your preseason picks had the mighty Stanford Cardinal, I believe, going two and four. Maybe one of you actually had three wins. But I called in. I emailed, I diligently communicated with you that my strong expectation was that this team would be better in every way, except where we lost a couple stars, that uh, we would return to the tree glory of our past. Now, I'm not going to say our defense is elite, because obviously it is not, but how about them, Cardinal, huh? Come on. Four and two. Things are going in the right direction, and if I'm not mistaken, not only did you make fun of me at one point for having my baby in the background, he was fine. He had already been fed that week, but also you continually made fun of some of the claims that I made. So now I'm going to, with great joy, sit back and listen as you two, in two-part harmony, regale us with the band freeze version of all right now keep it mediocre boys thanks for a great year i'm gonna enjoy this all right so david already said he is going to um he is going to uh i will sing all right now by the band free at some point soon i just need to actually uh learn the lyrics to it right so you learn the lyrics and we'll sing it to you uh in the new year um so okay so that's the voicemail david's gonna sing Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and answer the rest of the questions. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're back here on the podcast of Champions Dave. We've got a email. Uh, this one's from Paul. It's about the spread. Uh, you two always have the same picks against the spread. Just an idea. Maybe next year, instead of choosing against the Vegas spread, what if you two debate and develop your own spread such that Dave and Ryan are always selecting opposite teams? I see two possible problems. One, somebody would have to track this, which Ryan already puts in way too much work into this, Dave. And two, Dave's dominant personality would tend to move spreads in his favor you're not seeing the real problem which is this would make this show even friggin longer which we can't have yeah uh it's already i thought it was just a pick against the spread. i mean i like i like that we pick against the spread and maybe some people don't like when we talk about it but most times you see people making you know they make a zillion picks like they pick on college game day every week not against the spread but like and the people keep track, like we're actually keeping track. So you can hold us accountable. Like if we're terrible against picking against the spread, then you can call us out being terrible. I think four out of the five years or whatever, five out of six now, like we've had winning records. So that's pretty good. You know, I did, you know, significantly up above 500 this year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that we keep track of it and stuff. Cause if we're bad at it, we probably stop or we probably be like, don't, don't listen to us. But for the most part, We've been, you know, above 500. Don't listen to us. Yeah, you probably shouldn't listen to us anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, and like in any way, like don't ever listen to us like this show. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, Jake sent something very strange in like it's came in like a dot text document. I don't yes. know why. Uh, but it says in the most recent broadcast, when asked what position Talano Hufunga plays in the pros, David said that he doesn't play in the pros. Can you please explain why you feel that way? Sure, Jake. Um, I think he is a linebacker who is a tweener, um, and I don't know that he's going to have a positional fit. He actually reminds me of his uh, USC forebear, Sua Cravens, um, in some ways, and I don't know um, where he fits in in the pros. I have a hard time seeing him backstopping an NFL defense. Um, I think he is a tremendous college player that maybe taps out from like an upside perspective in the college game. Um, I don't think he's going to be a long-term NFL guy. I am not an NFL scout. That's just my, my take on him. He's a kind of a thick bodied safety and that just doesn't really work in today's NFL. 
Yeah, he ended up being the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year uh, with the four interceptions and a bunch of tackles for losses. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm no NFL scout either. I would think they're going to find a place for him. But like Asua Cravens was in there for a while, but this didn't really work out. Um, I think he's a better player than Sua Cravens, but we'll see. Um, he just got some really good instincts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he's but, really good. Really yeah, good player. Good player. All right. Uh, that, yeah, that was a weird dot text thing. So it's very like Windows 95. Uh, Chase, uh, Pac-12 head coaches. He says, hey, Ryan and Dave, or hi, Ryan and Dave. I'm just curious uh, if your opinions on any of the Pac-12 coaches have changed after this last half a season. With Clay Elton making the most out of yet another talentless group of players at SC and Arizona no longer having a coach, probably an upgrade, there seems to be a decent amount of solid coaching improvements this year. Uh, okay, but in all seriousness, if you are taking both the on-field product and the recruiting into account, how would you rank them now that the regular season is, is over? Anyone in particular who impressed or disappointed, full disclosure, I'm a bus fan, and what CU did this year has a lot of people excited, but the recruiting has me worried about the long term. Keep up the good work. Chase. Okay, so we're trying to rank the coaches. All right, I'm writing them quickly in a doc so we don't forget anyone. So are we going to just avoid fish for now, or are we going to add them in there? Um, yeah, let's avoid them since we don't know. Okay, so we'll, we'll rank the remaining 11 coaches in the league. So Darrell, Whittingham, Shaw, Wilcox, uh, Cristobal, Smith, Lake, uh, Rolovich. Okay, so for my money, uh, the best coach in the league at getting bang for his buck, uh, you know, dollar, dollar bills, y'all, um, is it Jonathan Smith? Or is it Kyle Whittingham? I think I'd go. I mean, Whittingham's got more bucks, but I think the results have just been significantly better than Oregon State. There's just too much potential there. So you're going Smith? No, I'd go Whittingham. Yeah, I'd go Whittingham. Um, I'm not even sure I'd go Smith number two, but he's definitely up there. Um, Okay, so Whittingham is number one. Is Darrell going to be up high? Well, One and how factor in Cristobal? Because the thing with Cristobal is I don't think he's a great in-game coach, but the recruiting is so elite, like so beyond elite, that I think he has to be on this top two. Because it's changed the trajectory of that program. Um, you know, it was dead in the water under Helfrick, and it was just fine under Taggart. Um, but now they are a legit, you know, Pac-12 title contender every single year again. So... So you have to put both. So you're doing on-field product and recruit, but it's not like... It's not one or the other. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think Cristobal would be two then. All right, Cristobal number two. Um, then go Smith. What do you think? Would you go it's Smith? It's kind of the flip. It's the, you know, what are you going to recruit at Oregon State? But he is a very good in-game coach. Yeah, probably go Smith. And then maybe Durrell? It's either Herm or Durrell, I think. I mean, there's only there's like less of a sample size, but um, yeah, I'm not ready to go top four with Darrell. I'm going to go hard okay. there. Um, then I'll go Darrell number five. Yeah. Um, and then you've got so you've got David Shaw, who I think historically would be in the top half of this list. Obviously, hasn't been great of late. Um, but I, I feel pretty good with Shaw there, and maybe go you know Wilcox next. Do you, would you go Wilcox or Lake? Uh, Lake didn't do anything this year. 
Okay. Well, they didn't do anything for me at all. Um, I mean, they only lost one game. Yeah. I'm going to go Wilcox 7. Okay. Um, and then it's Kelly, Helton, Lake, Rolovich. Lake? I think Lake, maybe. Then Kelly? Kelly, Rolovich. Rolovich, and then Helton, obviously, last. <laughs> so our list would be Kyle Whittingham, uh, Mario Cristobal, Jonathan Smith, Herm Edwards, Carl Durrell, David Shaw, Justin Wilcox, Jimmy Lake. Chip Kelly, Nick Rolovich, Clay Helton. I would say the Rolovich has the biggest asterisk. He can rise up this list very quickly, um, but just as of right now, a snapshot in time. Um, Kelly and Helton obviously have no upside. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, Kelly showed a little bit later, right? Uh, he recruits like what would happen if um, <laughs> my dad started recruiting college football players. Okay. Fair. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. Cool. Good team. That's a good. We might put that in the blog. Cause I like that. Well, or like tweet it out or something like, uh, chase. Yeah, that was a good one. So we'll, uh, that's our, that's our official list of ranking the pack 12 coaches right now. Yeah. All right. This is from Dave. Uh, the person who emailed us 17 times last week, he has another one this week. Uh, this is a young team is the subject line. Pac-12 seniors in the two deeps. Arizona has 13. ASU has 11. Cal has 15. Colorado has 4. Stanford has 16. Utah has 10. USC has 9. UCLA has 6. UW has 9. Washington State has 11. Oregon State has 11. And Oregon has 17. I keep hearing the phrase, this is a young team, mostly from a plethora of Oregon fans. But Oregon edges out Stanford for most seniors playing. Why are Oregon fans so unfamiliar with their own roster? What should we call teams like Colorado and UCLA? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people use that excuse. I think it comes from coaches first and foremost. They say, oh, we've got a young team. What they mean is, uh, please don't judge me for how this team is performing this year. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can always say it's a young team because guess what? It's college football. None of these guys are older than 23 unless you coach BYU. Um, so, uh, seniors though. So I would say there's a difference between young and inexperienced, a distinction that most of these coaches rarely make. Um, Oregon has some lack of experience at some spots, uh, because they, you know, graduated five guys on the offensive line, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, so when they say this is a young team, they might mean this isn't an experienced team. I don't think that's particularly true though, even for Oregon, because, as Hitler has pointed out, a lot of those offensive linemen played last year. And also in the secondary, a lot of those dudes played last year. So it wasn't even that they were that inexperienced. Um, but a lot of them are no nothing fans, which also means that they basically mean the quarterback is new. Um, so long story short, um, it's always a bullshit excuse almost every single year. Uh, don't listen to coaches who say it. Uh, Chip Kelly said it for like basically the last three years every single opportunity. It's just horse shit. Um, if you've got that young of a team, you've managed your roster poorly. Yeah. And then this is weird too. I, I, I think if your metric is only seniors in the two deep, that's not a great one to judge. I mean, I don't know what the perfect judge a young team is, but you know, just upperclassmen might be a little better or freshmen that were playing the two deep. I mean, if you could be Colorado with four seniors, but if you have, you know, 14 red shirt juniors that are on the team, um, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, that are in the two deep. I think that's a whole different story as well. And then this year is very strange, too, because all of your seniors could potentially come back and play. 
Um, so we have to watch not just opting out of like redshirt sophomores and, and juniors and redshirt juniors, but seniors could come back and, and play again. So, there, you know, there's a weird opportunity there. You could have someone that's been super productive and is a redshirt senior uh, for your program that decides to come back and play a sixth year. So this is, yeah, I, I, I don't like this metric, but, and I don't like, I agree with Dave. I don't like the excuse. It's usually just an excuse. We're a young team. Like everyone's, like you said, under 21 years old. So uh, everybody's young. It's just more about experience. All right. Uh, this is from Bob. He says more questions. Uh, hey, y'all. Uh, Bob from Alaska again. So here's a few question for you, questions for you guys. With early signing day completed, I was just wondering, what's the main difference between the different recruiting companies, 24-7 sports, rivals, ESPN? What's uh, the 247 does a good job. Yeah. ESPN does not. Rivals is, uh, you know, regional. Take it or leave it some places. Um, 247 uh, is the biggest one by far now, I think, um, from like a recruiting. Obviously, ESPN is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate, but 247 uh, is the biggest of the like um, actual recruiting organizations. And the 247 composite is uh, probably the biggest um the thing that gets cited by everyone, like any kind of other news media company that picks this crap up, uh, they're the ones, the the composites what gets cited. So from like a brand equity standpoint, there's a lot there. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're all trying to do basically the same thing. Just ESPN does a horrific job of it. Um, and that's no fault of anybody who works there. They just don't cover uh, most of the country. Yeah. ESPN is more about producing television shows and, and rivals in, in 24-7 are more about, like, that's what they do. ESPN kind of does it because they need to, they want their own rankings. But it's really just more about what is their, you know, what's it going to help their, the, the shows that they're producing. And uh, it's, I don't even think they have anyone on the West Coast. The story I remember, um, Greg Biggins used to work for ESPN at and one point. And they wouldn't point. let him evaluate. Yeah, he wasn't allowed to evaluate players. Like, he just had to do, like, these updates of what's going on. And he's like, I'm I'm watching. I think it was, like, Darius Rogers or something. ESPN, you know, he was, like, a four-star guy and, like, rivals or whatever scout at the time. And ESPN had him as, like, the 12th, number 1,200, you know, wide receiver in the country. And uh, Greg Biggins is covering him. Like, dude, I'm watching him right here. Like, no, some guy in Bristol is the one that's uh, ranking him. And they're like, okay, you know. So that's that's kind of what you get. It's a, a, a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, next up was wondering if you think the Pac-12 should get rid of their divisions. Do you like the divisions, Dave, or do you think get rid of them? I think they're fine. Yeah, I don't have an issue. I Like I said, we could rearrange them a little bit, but a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest hate when I say that, so I won't say that again. Dude, and Andrew is, is writing you a thousand-word tweet series right now. Yes. Uh, well, with eye charts and stuff all over them. Uh, it says, lastly, uh, is if they were to get rid of divisions, how would they decide who plays who? I'm assuming they would keep one or two rivals per team who plays each other every year. Also, what would they do about keeping the California schools playing against each other every year? So that's a, if you did the divisions where all the California schools were in the same division, then they would get to play each other um and that that's one of the things he's now writing you another thousand words in a tweet series he is um that would limit some of the pacific northwest exposure to the state of california and recruiting and that's where andrew 
um, and other people would have issues with. But yes, if I mean, the way they're doing it now, all the California schools get to play each other. So if they got rid of divisions, you would assume they would continue to uh, play each other. And I think the SEC does something similar with their divisions where like, you know, a team like Tennessee and Alabama have a rivalry. They get to play every year, unfortunately for Tennessee. Um, but they also skip a lot of like the, you know, the Georgias and the Alabamas don't really get to play all that often. Um, there's so many teams in that division that it's harder for them to play. You'd still only be missing two games a year, but how they would do that would certainly be um, interesting. It might be similar to the same lines as the divisions. Um, you would think like a UCLA could play Utah more than they'd play Oregon State, and like a Washington State would play uh, the Ducks more than they would play you know, Colorado, but that just has a division feel to it. So, yeah, I'm not sure how they would do that. No idea. Um, this is a hypothetical that, um, frankly, doesn't interest me at all, <laughs> uh, which is rare. Um, hypotheticals, you know, I usually can just climb fully up my own butthole going into them, but I don't care. Um, the uh, the divisions as they are now are fine. Um, if you want to set up a schedule where UCLA never has to play friggin' Stanford again, I'm fine with that. But other than that, no, it's fine. It's all cool. All right. Uh, this is from Ithladay. Uh, Setu Bandhasana. Uh, I just Googled almost... it real quick. I think it's a yoga pose, like a bridge yoga pose. Okay. I believe. All right. That's the first thing that came up in the Google, so I'm going to assume it's that. Great. Uh, I think Colorado, Oregon, Utah, and Wazoo signed nice, well-balanced classes that filled needs, but the rest of the league had some real head-scratchers I'd like your take on. ASU had four commits unexpectedly not signed on early signing day, including their number one and number three rated guys. They also spent the last six weeks dropping the scholarship offers from at least five other commits. What's going on there? I have no friggin' idea. Yeah, sorry, Ethel Day. I didn't like dig into that one uh, too deep, so... Um, Great. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get a recruiting show going in January, uh, and we'll, we'll ask them all these questions that'll probably yeah. change by then. Uh, Cal took four, approximately 240 pound DEs, but no DTs, and they still don't have a reliable nose tackle on a three down front. I think that's been the biggest reason for their defensive decline the last two years. Do you boys agree? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah. biggest reason for their defensive decline is the lack of a reliable nose tackle on a three down front. Absolutely. <laughs> today. Uh, Stanford's class is usually about this small, but I'm not used to seeing this little talent. I'd have figured the trees would be uh, least hard hit by COVID, since who needs to see the campus to accept a free Stanford degree? Yeah, I think this is um, more a factor of the obvious um, implosion of the Stanford football program more than it is, uh, you know, anything COVID-related. This And this is weird, too, because we've seen, I think, in the 2020 class, Stanford had, like, a top four recruiting class but then they would have a bunch of guys transfer out now you have a bunch of guys transfer out and not signing a you know a, a, a bigger class is uh, kind of interesting but with the you know there could be a free agent market out there i don't think stanford's usually going to be a team that's bringing in transfers but i mean they could bring in some grad transfers i mean i don't know i mean it, it, that could be interesting but that's going to be if you didn't have a big or, or great recruiting class i think there's opportunities to get transfers in and uh, the NCAA exemption to allow people to transfer uh, one time and, and play right away. Maybe Stanford could try to do something like that, but obviously it's a little harder for Stanford than some of the other teams. Yep. Uh, Oregon State signed eight kids and only three on defense. Is it genius or folly to go this hard at the portal? I actually have some thoughts on this. Um, I think there's a couple different programs, UCLA among them, who are um, uh, 
at least toying with the idea of going like supercharged K State in terms of how they build the roster um, with the transfer portal. Um, I, I think Oregon State might be thinking that as well. Um, it's not we ju- we just don't know. I'm not ready to call it folly or genius at this point because you just don't know how it's going to look. If you're not into if you if you think you've got a good program culture and all that kind of stuff and you think you can retain your dudes, I think it's not a bad plan. Um, it's just, you know, how much can you sell at Oregon state, uh, to guys to, you know, come out and transfer because with 11 guys signed, you're going to need to, or signed with eight guys signed. Sorry. Um, I mean, you're going to need to fill it out with like 10, 12 transfers. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm, this whole next year is going to be bizarre. Um, from a roster building standpoint, it's going to be completely uncharted territory. I'm excited to watch it. I think it'll be fun, but, um, I think a lot of teams might be going in with a similar plan and it's just a question of, are there going to be enough available people? Is there going to be that truly that number of transfers? Um, and we'll see. We saw Illinois try to do that with Lovey Smith and that was his strategy. Now this was before the exemption and they actually had some good guys come in and contribute, but obviously it didn't translate to winning. He ends up getting fired, but he was sort of like an early adopter of that. We'll see how other teams do. I'm sure it's going to work for some programs and probably fail miserably for other ones. Yeah. Washington signed zero linebackers. Last year, they signed two low three-star inside linebackers. The previous year, they signed two four-star inside linebackers, but have yet to play them. The year before that, they signed one mid-star, mid-three-star star mid inside linebacker. He's playing behind to walk on. How did UW's linebacker coach Bob Gregory earn a contract extension? That's a great question, Hitfoot. I uh, where are all of UCLA's four stars? Uh, Chip Kelly doesn't like to recruit Hithliday. Thank you for asking this question. Um, what's, what's killing me, just a short, short little thing on UCLA's class. What's killing me about this class is that it's the classic, like, Chip Kelly has set expectations so low in recruiting that the fact that this class is, like, sort of sniffing the top 35 is, like, getting everyone just absolutely crazed on the UCLA board. Like, oh, yeah, Chip Kelly's getting it now. He's getting it done. Like, this would have been, like, the worst class by far for Jim Mora. Like, by far. And it's just, what are we even talking about here? What are we doing? Um, So, anyway, yeah, they're not on the team because uh, Chip Kelly doesn't like recruiting. Yeah. Uh, uh, Clay Helton knows he can't feel the defense made up of 11 DBs, right? Yeah, they signed five, um, and that was by far their best group. But that's basically just because they had a good defensive back recruiter. Like their two best recruiters are probably Craig Navar and Dante Williams. They're they you know they're the defensive back guys. So it's really them just trying to get the best players they can, and it's easier to get DBs because you have better recruiters there. So that's a uh, yeah, that's just bad planning. And I mean, they needed to get a bunch of defensive backs, but it's uh, it's just because they have better recruiters there. All right, let's rapid fire these. I want to be done by seven thirty. Okay, Perk. Uh, this is. I want to start by wishing Ryan a happy fiftieth, happy fiftieth birthday, and let him know his quote. Look, if fifty college players die, we need to take a look at this comment regarding COVID policy. Caused me nearly to choke on my lunch when I was listening. Um, okay. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you for both of those. No other podcast has nearly killed me. Five stars. Okay. Nonetheless, my first two questions are for Ryan. Do you think this is the best wide receiver group USC has fielded? If not, who would you place above it? 
I think it is even losing um, Michael Pittman just because, you know, you, you're seeing Brew McCoy, you're seeing Drake London, um, you know, Tyler Vaughn's has just been there forever. He, if he comes back for like a sixth year, he would set every USC record. And I'm on St. Brown is like, you know, amazing. So I, I think this is the best group I've seen um, playing together. There are other ones who you have like a Dante Burnett, which, you know, he was really good. And, you know, like a three-star dude, like these are all like highly ranked guys. They're all playing at a high level. Um, I mean, a whole bunch of five-star guys. So I think it's the best one. Marquise uh, Lee and Robert Woods still really good. Say it. I mean, those were, and, and then you had like Nelson Aguilar, like those were good, but they were usually like duos where now you have like four guys. So just, yeah. but yeah, I don't know if you're going to beat those two as far as a duo goes though. Sure. Um, do you think USC still skips the bowl game if they made it to a New Year's Six Bowl? Hell no. They're playing in the Fiesta Bowl. So that's where, and I don't know, we, we didn't really get into this, Dave. Um, yeah, I think if they were going to play the Fiesta Bowl, they would have played, but the, they skipped the Alamo Bowl. Like, does that, sit okay with you or are you fine with that what do you think everyone should be skipping bowl games but yeah yeah see great good job <laughs> okay and then three what's your guys favorite christmas song and i don't just mean that way. from a covid year everyone should skip them every year they're terrible <laughs> don't do them <laughs> favorite christmas song least favorite most overrated we kind of touched on this or a little bit but um i'll go uh, uh um oh holy night uh favorite christmas song least favorite uh some of the trash, like, I don't know, Jingle Bells, Deck of the Hall, something like that. Um, most overrated? Oh, boy. Um, oh, that Mariah Carey piece of crap. All I okay. want for Christmas is you. I would agree with you on that. I, I mean, I don't really have, like, a super favorite one. Um, I mean, I just like, I like them. I like listening to Christmas music, but there's not one that's like, oh, yeah, this is my favorite song. Uh, I do like like some of the, the the modern one it was like the uh it's the the waitresses i think and uh was it christmas something i don't know but it's good it's like oh, from wow. the kiddies you, I, mean, you um, probably... I saw three ships that's that's an all that's another banger it's an all-time banger um <laughs> uh yeah yeah oh what's the uh what's the um the one that got a lot of controversy uh like oh it's baby it's cold outside i kind of like that oh even though people think it's like a rapey song or something yeah, a, i mean it's a good song it yeah. jams yeah yeah um and it, it satisfies a major criteria for me which is it was recorded prior to um the breaking of the 1960s yes and he says uh, hope, hope you have a great birthday ryan and have a great christmas guys always love listening thank you perk appreciate it all right, uh, Frank in Sacramento. Time for a change. Luke Fickle is 31-5 and five the last three years at Cincinnati. He's Mike Bone's good buddy and would jumpstart the Trojans in 2021. What are the odds a USC booster pays to buy out Helton? It would cost a lot less than Auburn paid to get rid of Gus Malzahn. Actually, it wouldn't, Frank, in Sacramento. Uh, it would cost more from what my sources have told me. And uh, I think the odds of – I think USC can make a change in 2021. I don't think they're making one. I mean – during the season or after the season, I don't think one's happening uh, before that. So I, yeah, I, I don't think they have the political backing, like from the president of the university and the board of trustees at this point. I think Mike Bone would love to replace Clay Elton, and I don't think he's going to be able to. That's my take. Uh, all right. Thanks for that one. This is from Drew, Losing Faith. Wow, this looks like packed in there. I've loved college football over the NFL for a long time, but the last few seasons and the constant disrespect of good teams in favor of teams that rate well on TV makes me just want to not watch anymore. It started in 2014 with Ohio State jumping Baylor slash TCU 
UCF not even being a reasonable option despite a 12-0 record. Washington State being passed over for the New Year's Six in favor of three and four lost teams who are, quote, blue bloods. And now this year with Cincy not even being really considered despite an undefeated record and rating well in all the advanced stats above Notre Dame and most of them. And then we have Coastal, an 11-0 team, passed over for not one, but two three-loss teams, one of which is ranked lower than them. Uh, I give up as a fan. How can we support a sport where you can go undefeated and not even have the opportunity to prove they belong? The way the college football playoff and the Big Bulls cater to the Blue Blood programs and TV over who accurately deserves it makes me not want to watch anymore because it doesn't matter a 12-0 Boise State will never be given the nod over a one-loss Blue Blood, uh, and even a 12-1 Washington State, Vandy, insert small Power 5 school here, will never get in over a 12-1 Michigan or Texas. I know this isn't directly Pac-12 related and kind of ranty, but as a fan, it's upsetting to see how good you are doesn't matter as much as who you are, and that makes me just not care. Uh, at least in hoops, a small school like Gonzaga can get a chance every year to prove they belong and can build a program off that success. Yeah, um, part of the problem is, um, I think, uh, during the college football playoff era, um, dominance has been um, really unified around a few different programs. Um, and it's just made it so that it feels like every single year it's basically the same four teams getting in. Um, I think he de- there's an argument this year that hasn't necessarily been there previous years that the group of five schools actually did produce some strong contenders. BYU, even with the loss to Coastal Carolina, had a really strong resume. Cincinnati, for sure. Um, so I think this year, more than even previous years, like UCF, um, even even more than that, I think, since he had an argument. Um, but... Uh, I, I think it's more a factor that just it feels boring because every year it's Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, you know, some some version of those four. And then you sprinkle in a Notre Dame or an LSU on occasion. But it's the same four teams, same, you know, four ish programs every single season. And that makes it just feel boring. Um, and I think that's really the argument that we're all making, which is this is not interesting. I don't need to see Alabama Clemson for like the 15th time. Um so I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if it's a problem, really, even. Um, I think we are getting true champions in a way that we didn't previously, which is probably, you know, for some people, a net good. Um, but I also think there are, there is some real limitation for it from the group of five standpoint. Um, if they're going to continue participating in the system, they got to be thrown a bone occasionally, and this would have been the year to do it. Um, you know, Cincinnati would have been an easy one to pick, and they weren't. They just didn't do it. Um so that's unfortunate because uh, Notre Dame, I mean, boy, howdy. Uh, they they got their absolute just doors blown off by Clemson. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I don't want to see that again. So I don't know. I think it's boring. I, I don't think it's particularly interesting when it's the same four teams every year or more or less the same four teams every year. Um, but it is solving for the problem that it was created to, you know, solve for, which is finding a true champion. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see it expanded just so you could get Cincinnati in there and, um, and just see it. And I think not just, will Cincinnati win the, the, you know, the, the tournament there and, you know, probably not uh, with coastal Carolina, but it would be cool to see them at least in there. You know, we've seen the, you know, the year Boise state beat Oklahoma, 
they would have advanced. You know, that's cool. I, I'd like to see something like that. And because the playoff ends up being the end all, it's not just, you know, I know there's like people that, that were getting on me because I said expand the playoffs. There were some of the, the Pac-12 listeners were just upset. But when the Pac-12 just keeps missing the playoff year after year after year, I think it does hurt recruiting as a, in general across the, the league where it might be better for a West Coast to stay, you know, West Coast player to stay. And he, does he pick USC or Oregon over Clemson or Alabama, knowing that they'll at least have a seat, you know, at the table, they'll at least get a shot at making the playoff. And I, I think it, would, it does hurt the Pac-12 that they aren't good enough to make the playoff. Right. But it and also hurts them on recruiting. Close. And but would it hurt would it help a Cincinnati knowing like, hey, we want to go to Cincinnati and we can be great. But also like, wow, Cincinnati could actually make the playoff. I think it opens up uh, some opportunities for group of five schools and then like a power five league like the Pac-12 that gets left out every year. Some some uh, some extra recruiting juice. So I don't know. Uh, but thanks for the email, Drew. Absolutely. Uh, All right. Next up, we've got John and Brea. Rose Bowl. Dear Ryan and Dave, since it's tangentially related to the Pac-12, I'd like to get your thoughts on the Rose Bowl being played in Dallas. I would probably be okay with it if it was done for good reasons by well-intentioned intelligent people, but that wasn't the case. Listening to Brian Kelly whine about not having families able to attend the college football playoff game if played in Pasadena is pretty much par for the course with him. Talk about tone deaf. Uh, angry McRedface, people are actually dying, but when, he's, when has he ever let that stand in the way of a football game or practice? Kelly teed them up, and then the cronies of the CFP quickly took the opportunity to crap all over the Rose Bowl in the last best piece of West Coast college football. Having the head coach of Notre Dame claim that holding the Rose Bowl in Pasadena without fans is worshipping the ashes of tradition is about as ironic as you can get. Hey, CFP committee, it's a freaking pandemic, you sanctimonious pricks. Happy New Year, guys, John and Brea. I love it. No notes. No, yeah, good one, John. Yeah, I didn't like Kelly's comments for sure. Um, I felt like they were going to be going behind the scenes and and making this happen anyway, because they wanted to have, uh, you know, families be able to attend the game. And, you know, now there'll be fans actually at the game too, random fans. Um, so yeah, that I, I didn't like Brian Kelly's comments on this one uh, at He's all. He's a piece of shit. A uh, long time piece of shit. Absolute um, horror of a human being. Um, him disregarding public health is no news here because he basically let somebody die um, covering his practice from a, um, from a scissor lift. Uh, he's a piece of crap. Wish nothing but bad things for Brian Kelly in life. Huh. That's, that's the, the, the nice Christmas message we give you. Absolute uh, horror show of a human being. Uh, nothing good should ever happen to him again. But the irony about like the, the ashes of tradition, like, you know, the Notre Dame program that hasn't won a championship since 1988. You want to talk about tradition? Like that's, that's the irony was they're pretty special. Yeah, no, he should, he should be shoveling snow for the rest of his life. All right, we got one last text message. I'm looking at snow right now, right through the window. Um, so in a year where there is a bevy of good coaching candidates at the group of five level, Arizona chooses longtime K-Rock drive time stalwart Jed the Fish. Jed the Fish. I, I, I haven't listened to K-Rock. Well, I don't really listen to the radio well, as much anymore. This is an old-time one. Yeah, yeah that's an old-time one. But it's – no, no, no. I, I know Jed the Fish. But once they like pretty much fired Kevin and Bean, then uh, I've kind of was out on the K Rock thing. Once um, uh, the internet came out, I was pretty much out on the radio. So. <laughs> uh, what, well, we already kind of talked about, you know, uh, Dead the Fish. Yeah. So, but thank you for that uh, little antidote to end the show. But, Dave, any final thoughts? 
Nothing. Uh, I wish everyone a happy holiday season. I uh, hope everyone is safe, healthy, and happy and enjoying this as well as they possibly can, given that it's a very strange year. Um, stay safe, everyone, and uh, we will see you again in the new year. Sounds good. Thanks for all the questions. Thanks for listening. It's been a great uh, year, weird year covering Pac-12 football, but uh, we appreciate you being with us every step of the way. That's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thanks for tuning in to the Podcast of Champions, and we will talk to you next time. Ho, ho, ho.